This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In the first, second, and third grade, we are learning to read from the fourth grade on, we're reading to learn. When that child hits third and fourth grade and he has not learned to read, he or she is struggling. Hey, it's Dr. Phil and you found your way back to fill in the blanks. Sadly, the interest to become a teacher or remain a teacher is really the worst that it's been in our nation's history. And we're going to tackle the teacher shortage, low standards, student whining, and new requirements in states like Arizona and Florida that pass what critics call the warm body law to put unqualified people in classrooms as teachers. Now, other states are pushing universities to expedite teacher certifications. Now, some districts are hiring student teachers who are still enrolled in college to be full-time first-year teachers. Now, speaking with me today is someone I'm a big fan of, Dr. Ingrid Haynes Trailer. Served two decades in P 12 public education as a teacher and administrator, and now serves as the director of the National Literacy Institute. She also teaches bachelor's, master's, and doctoral level literacy courses and has published books and numerous journal articles on literacy instruction. Now, she actively researches best practices in literacy instruction for at-risk students and conducts literacy training and workshops across the nation to build instructional capacity in teachers who teach our most fragile learners. So, welcome, Ingrid. Thank you. Listen, I've got so many things that I want to talk to you about, and you have so much information about this literacy, we had the opportunity to visit before, mm-hmm. and I hope we have more time to visit even after this. I was absolutely stunned mm-hmm. at the state of literacy in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is something that you deal with every single day. How in the world did we get in the situation that we're in? And I'll preface it by saying, you say there are 130 million adults unable to read a simple story to their children at the end of the day. Yeah. How is that possible? Listen, you know, I don't know. So many things have happened. One, let's, what's recently happened was COVID, right? And that changed the dynamics of how we do school. I mean, never, this is going on 30 years with me teaching. Never did I teach kindergarten, first graders, you know, online. So that was the issue. So many of our babies are already coming to school with a deficit um, reading. So many of our teachers, Dr. Phil, I know I'm getting ready to be on this hot seat, but so many of our teachers do not know how to teach literacy. Many of them are learning as they go, and many of them are learning through programs um, of teaching uh, literacy. So it's it's many do they do not know. It's in everything. If you go to secondary, you'll have secondary teachers. They would tell me, oh, I'm just a science teacher. I'm just a math teacher. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if they can't read 
your science experiment project or whatever, then they, they won't be able to do what you want them to do in, in that particular area. So it's just, it has been one thing after the next. COVID hit, many of our programs are not preparing um, teachers to teach literacy. I've worked in higher education and you look at the degree plan of 120 hours, you know, you may have one literacy course, one math content course, one math science course, right? And so here it is, they get thrust into the, 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 the school system. And look, Dr. Field, we don't tell them that you may get a class of 30 and of the 30, you may have eight to nine to 12 kids reading on different grade levels. Because if we did that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't stay in the profession. So we have to make it seem like it's wonderful. It's going to be okay. Then all of a sudden we throw them in first, second, third grade, and they start calling me, Dr. Ingrid, what is going on? Half my babies can't read. Um, and then when you talk to parents, uh, many of our parents are leaving it up to the schools to do it all. You know, we are our children's first teachers. You should be going into the classroom telling that teacher, this is how my child learns best. He likes to be read this way or he likes these type of stories. But a lot of our parents are leaving it all up to the schools. And that's not, you know, that's not working. Well, let me ask you something. One of the things you said that just really stuck with me, and I thought you expressed it so well, I had made the comment that if you're not reading on grade level at the end of the third grade, that the risk of dropping out before graduation was four times normal unless you were low socioeconomic and then it was six times normal. And you said there's a reason for that. I wrote the quote down and I've repeated it many times. I threatened to take credit for it when you weren't around, but I haven't yet. I've always <laughs> given you credit. You said in the first, second, and third grade, we are learning to read. Absolutely. And from the fourth grade on, we're reading to learn. Absolutely. I thought that was so insightful. And I think back to my kids and to the extent I can remember myself, that is so right. Those first years you're learning to read, it doesn't matter what you're reading, you're just learning to read the words. But then after that, you're reading to learn the content that they give you in science or math or government or whatever. And if you haven't picked up the skill, you're lost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And listen, Dr. Phil, the teacher doesn't have time. I mean, she's she's got he or she has all this other information. Here it is. I'm in third grade and I absolutely need phonics. I absolutely need phonemic awareness. If I can't decode the word, how can I comprehend the text? But we don't have time because that's where we get in those reading passages. And that's when we get in those standardized tests that hit third grade. And so when that child hits third and fourth grade and he has not learned to read, he or she is struggling. A lot of the research says he or she will never catch up. It is, it's just like we're just chasing um, chasing numbers. Because the train just keeps moving faster, right? The sentences get more complex. Mm -hmm. The words have more syllables. And they're moving mm -hmm. through the material at a more rapid pace. Absolutely. At that point, his disposition, he or she knows that they're struggling. And that's where that behavior comes in. I'm sitting kindergarten and first grade. I learned and I did sounds and I did nursery rhymes. And, you know, I, I, I learned a lot of things. And then here it is. I get all of this expository text, this informational text. That's when he realizes I'm not reading on grade level. 
And then sometimes we start getting behavior problems because then he's got to act out um, or she have to act out. And, you know, and a lot of times people ask me, you know, Doc, who's all of, all affected by the child not reading on grade level? And it's everyone. The child is socially, emotionally affected. The teacher, the parents, everyone is then feeling a certain way um, because that child is not reading on grade level. Yeah, third grade is major. That's when we start having the behavior problems because I can't read. Then I have to act out to get it off me, to get to get to get the teacher from asking me to read the passage. Plus, that disrupts the class, too. So how does a parent determine that their child is falling behind in reading at home? What can you tell a parent to see if their child is falling behind and they need to do something remedial? I hate to say this. I know I'm going to get in trouble, but I stay in trouble. Dr. Phil, the, the parents know. I, I haven't really met a parent who, who, who doesn't know that their kid is not reading on grade level. They know that it's something. The problem is... Now that I know that he's not reading or she's not reading on grade level, how do I go in to express to the teacher that I need help and then the teacher be able to give me support? How do I bridge this relationship? Right. How do I, you know, what, you know, what, how do I let that parent know that, you know, he's not reading in a way where she can still trust me as the educator? And then how is a parent, how, you know, I'm not blaming the educator because my child is not reading on grade level. I really hadn't met, I do a lot of parent literacy nights. I really hadn't met a parent who didn't really know that the baby, you know, they, they all come in kindergarten when I was a principal. Oh, Miss Ingrid, my baby's re- reading on 20th grade level. I'm just teasing, reading on ninth grade level, right? And then all of a sudden I said, well, well let, bring the book that he reads. And it's the same book that he's read every night as a baby. <laughs> so of course he can read that uh, that book, uh, you know, with, with, uh, without any problems. But then as the year progressed throughout the year, that's when they start noticing the grades and they start noticing, oh, my child is struggling on certain sounds and on the spelling test. So a lot of times they know, they just don't know how to ask for help. And then uh, there is a disconnect between that school and that home. I think we got to bridge relationships. A lot of times my parents, they tell me I'm scared to ask or I don't feel like I can ask um, for help. That's what I'm noticing. So Dr. Phil, I hadn't really... I hadn't really met a parent that told me they didn't know that the baby was struggling. I, I just, really? That would, oh, no, they know. Dr. Phil, they, they know. Do the parents know how to read? Now, I, we just talked about whether the parents know how to support the kids' um, reading ability. That's a different thing. Do they know? Yes. Do they know how to help? That may be the question. So you asked me what I was doing tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to, you know, the school. And I'm doing a thing called Cupcakes and Canvas. So I'm going in and I'm doing a read aloud and then I'm giving the parents some strategies and then we're going to draw a scene. But we're going to talk about how everything in your home could be a literacy teachable moment. And so I'm going to I've been doing this all semester long and I've had some alarming numbers like a hundred parents in one space. And I've told the schools, I love it. I got it. But I was just surprised at the number. When we first thought about doing parent literacy nights for schools, I was thinking, oh, we probably have one or two parents. Dr. Phil, the first one I did, that it was standing room. I did a literacy night. So I, I, I think they know, but do they need support on how to help their children? I think that's the question. 
Well, what are you teaching at Literacy Now? Are you teaching them how to teach their kid to read? Oh, ab- oh, absolutely. We go to the grocery store and we see all of these labels and we do this one activity. This is one I love. We make what we call a trash book. So what is a trash book? A trash, the students keep all the things that they've eaten or done throughout the, you know, throughout the week. And then they come back and they make a book about when they had that item. For an example, let's say they went to Bucky's. That's a store here in Texas, right? And they got barbecue Lay's potato chips. So then they would say, on Monday, I ate or I went to Bucky's and bought barbecue Lay's potato chips. They're writing a story. So I'm showing parents how to connect what they see around in their community, that those same words are also in print right? They absolutely are walking away like, oh my gosh, I love it. And they're bringing their labels in for us to do the activity with the babies. I'm doing the strategies with the parents alongside with their child. It's absolutely, I can't wait to start doing my my study, my my research on what's happening because it's just, I don't know, maybe some people have done this before, but this is my first time doing it. I'm absolutely just loving it, Um, but showing them the strategies. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is so smart. How old are the kids? We're doing elementary, middle school, and I have not done high school. So let me be real honest. So they're elementary, middle school students. Yeah. They're, okay. So they're elementary and secondary, but not high school. So we don't have any high schools um, in our in our group, but they've been mostly elementary and middle school. Yeah. But the turn, you know, the turnout, you know, the turnout rate of the parents coming at night has just been, I'm going to be honest with you, and some of our schools, Dr. Phil, are some of our most fragile schools. Mm-hmm. And um, the numbers have been just great with the turnout. So when people say in certain communities, parents won't show up, I'm, no, I can't wait to just be able to you know, present my data and my pictures to show. And then watch this, Dr. Phil, I know I'm taking over because I talk a lot. I have so many of the schools where the daddies have showed up. Really? Yes. 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 So don't tell me that I can't get a dad of a minority student to come up and hear me talk about literacy and how to help your child learn how to read. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Large population of daddies showing up and grandparents showing up. How much difference has it made that we are in a double income society now where both parents are outside the home working? Listen, it's changed the dynamics. I don't know. I mean, I'm 21, Dr. Phil, and you're 22. Somebody was at home more with you, helping you in in your schoolwork. My parents, both of my parents are highly educated and they were in education. But when they started having children, someone sort of stayed home 
um, right. to support us. It's a lot of us and someone stayed home to help us. Now you have both parents trying to live this American dream. And again, they're leaving it all up to the teachers to do everything. And so I think that has made a tremendous um, uh, impact or issue in our children. Both parents are working. When I was a principal, Doc, let me tell you something. Let's say I needed to speak to a uh, parent about the baby. Sometimes I would get the older sibling. You know, they would say, well, you know, my mama and daddy are working and so I'm coming. So let's say, you know, I'm uh, there's a third grader. I got the sixth grader coming to talk <laughs> to me about the third grader. So I would end up telling the parents, no, no, you want you all got to come talk to me. And so I think it's made a, an issue in, in how we how we do things at home with, with children. And so, yeah, they're both working. I ask parents, do you, you know, how often do you read to your baby? You know, how often do you have conversations with your children? Think about it, Dr. Phil. Like I said, you're 22, I'm 21. I have an 18-year-old who just won this year the Apple Swift Award. Well, watch this. When he comes home, he wants to say one word. Son, how was your day? Good. No, 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 no. How was your day? What did you do? What happened at school? It's like I'm having to pull it out of him. But I know right. that I have to pull it out of him. A lot of parents accept that. A lot of parents, you know, say he's in his room and the students go days without having a conversation with that with, with the parents. That's unacceptable. And that's the reason why we have a lot of things that are happening that, that you know, and we both know things that are happening in schools with crime. And the, the parents are first to say, I did not know that that was happening. You did not know because you were not paying attention to your, your child. There's an interesting body of literature out there. and There's one particular study. I don't recall the author of it, but I could find it. But there was a one-to-one -one inverse correlation between the number of words spoken in the home and the child's behavior. So a child would say, okay, can I go do this or that? Nope. Well, why not? Because I said no. Versus a home where they say, can I go do this? No. Why not? Well, you can't do it because the roads are icy and I don't think it's safe for you to do it. So I want you to stay home tonight where I'm not concerned that you're going to get into a wreck or what. And so when the parent shared the reasoning and the child could then internalize that because all discipline ultimately needs to become self-discipline. But without that, there's no message for the child to internalize. And then that translates into a lack of self-discipline later. It snowballs downhill, right? When there's just no communication between the parent and the child. Yes, yes. Dr. Phil, we look at that study. I know exactly what you're talking about. And we look at it from a cultural perspective. You know, in certain cultures, you know, it's what I say and it goes. Right. And so I'm not going to give you an explanation. And in certain other cultures, we, we, you know, they express the reason as to why you should not do it. And then it goes on to vocabulary development um, of different groups and different ethnic groups. So I know exactly the, the particular research that you were talking about. And it goes on to talk about how many words the, the kids from a certain ethnic group come, you know, come to school with. So many come with 600 words, you know, for uh, for a period. And some come with a thousand words. And two, I know exactly what it is. It is so true. My parents always told me, they said, you can argue as long as you want as long as it's respectful. The second you get disrespectful, the conversation is over. But you can debate till hell wouldn't have it as long as it is respectful. 
So I really developed some great early debating and negotiation skills because the channel was open as long as I didn't get mouthy. <laughs> and if you look at these New Day kids, as we call them the Z kids, they are very expressive. And a lot of us, if you're my age, sometimes I think it's talking back, but they think of it as expressing themselves and having a viewpoint. And so I'm with you with being able to debate and using your words to express yourself. But then you have a lot of educators, Dr. Phil, that feel like, you know, listen, that's disrespectful. I said no, and it's no, and that's it. And it's a lot of cultural piece behind that as well. Um, and so I'm so with you. Yep. Dr. Phil, I got an 18-year-old. And um, <clears throat> he loves to converse back and forth with me on his opinion. And now that he's won all these awards and he's designing <laughs> apps, Dr. Phil, he thinks he knows more than I know. But I'm grateful for the conversation. I'm, I'm grateful that we can have the interchange where he can, I guess, talk to me like he's on the same level as me. Yeah. Well, you know, when your kids come home, you say, where you been? Nowhere. Who'd you see? Nobody. What'd you do? Nothing. And the door slams. No, 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 no. Open the door. Come back out here. We're going to have a conversation about this. And it may be hard for them to get started, but once they get started, you can't shut them up. Doc, that is so true. That is so true. And that's getting the parents to know to get started. And a lot of times, you know, I do a lot of SEL. And so I do a lot of SEL with, with, with teachers and parents. And a lot of times, if you just keep the conversation going, you'll hear what's hurting them. They will eventually express to you, I'm having problems at school. I don't like my appearance. I don't feel good about myself. But we don't take time to keep pressing um, to get to those answers. Someone told me uh, they doc because the parents are afraid. They don't know what to do when they hear things like, I don't, I don't like myself. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to live. It's, they get scared and they shut down and don't know how to go seek resources. Yeah, they may be intimidated by it. But one of the things that I've always told parents, and it worked really well for me, you know, Robin and I have two boys and they were seven years apart, actually. My rule with them was always that if I wanted to talk to them, I wouldn't put them at a table or a chair in front of me. I would say, you know, let's go outside and shoot some baskets or let's take the dog for a walk or whatever, because if we were doing something else, even though it was just the two of us, and I could talk to them while we were walking or while we were playing a game of horse out in the basketball court or something, they didn't feel nearly as conspicuous. And I just keep kind of pecking and pecking and pecking. And before long, they tell you everything. They just don't want to feel like they're on the hot seat. So, Doc, now you you the expert in this part. I don't know if that's a, a daddy thing because I can't get them to give me halfway or anything. But if my husband, who does what you do and the kid's father, if they do the basketball or driving the car, whatever I thought I needed to know, especially like my 30-year-old, they could get it out. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I'm the educator. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm the mommy. I should get, but for some reason, I, I think that works out the field because I'm sitting there pressing, you know, like, wait a minute, A, B, C, the teacher said this, and how do you feel and whatever. And they could go with their, with their dad and drive around, I guess, and play basketball or go, I don't know, to the store. And he would come back and be able to tell me everything that was happening. I don't know if that's a, I don't know. I don't know if that's just what daddies can do, I guess. Well, they just don't want to feel conspicuous, I think, is mm -hmm. the thing about mm -hmm. it. And you say that 
parents sometimes lack the tools and teachers lack the tools mm-hmm. to teach all of these kids. But I wrote down some of the things you said and then some of the things mm-hmm. that I've found. And let me run over these for our listeners right now. Okay. Literacy data and impact on nation and economy. You said 130 million adults are unable to read the simple story to children. Mm-hmm. 21% of adults are illiterate in 2022. 45 mm-hmm. million are functionally illiterate and read below the fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. 44% of adults don't read a book in a year. Mm-hmm. Three out of four on welfare can't read. Mm-hmm. And 20% of Americans read below the level needed to earn a living wage. Mm-hmm. That is really troubling to me that we have such high percentages of people that can't functionally read. Now, these are mm-hmm. people that are out of school. Is there any kind of plan? The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Competitively, how do these people ever get out of poverty? How do they ever get out of paycheck to paycheck, particularly now when affordability is such an issue? If these people don't have the ability, if they don't have the literacy skills, how do we fix that for our American population? So a lot of organizations like myself have moved into doing um, financial literacy, health literacy sessions and all of that. And it's just for the adults, right, Um, to try to provide resources and support. Um, I do ELL classes. Um, So we are trying to now focus on the adults and providing them with tools and resources. Um, But it's that financial literacy, it's that health literacy, it's just that day in uh, functioning literacy that you need to be able to um, survive. So a lot of organizations like myself are trying to go in and provide and partner with with, with stakeholders and providing you know, adults with those resources to be able to help themselves and help their children. Um, and then my piece is, Doc, let me tell you, you know, when I when I was in Tennessee, I started the first charter school um, in Tennessee, and I partnered with um, the health commissioner. At the time, he was the health commissioner. And our focus was if we could get students at an early age, provide like the best foundation, like like doing birth to like preschool to like Head Start and all of that, that we could somewhat close this gap. So my thing is providing that foundational literacy, giving it to them early so that we can sort of stop, I guess, the bleeding, as people say, right? 
So two things, one, being able to go back and look at those Head Start programs, look at those early literacy, give those parents parenting skills. You know, the minute you realize that you're having a precious baby, what do you do to make sure that we give them the, the best support to be academically sound? And then um, and continue that process. And then for people who are right now that are struggling, how do we have organizations like ourselves that will provide you with, you know, financial literacy, health literacy, everyday support so you can help yourself out and help your child. But I think it's starting early. It's going back to, yes, here it is. She, you know, she or, you know, she's having a baby. How do we give them support now? This is what you do. Read to the baby. Sing to the baby. A lot of those things, Dr. Phil, that we knew to do um, as parents, a lot of times you will find that people don't know to do that. You talk to my baby, Dr. Ingrid. I'm like, yeah. He or she's are they can hear your voice. You know, I have a lady that works with me. Her name is Dr. Gonzalez. She tells this story all the time. I'm gonna be real quick. She says that her baby, you know, she the baby was in the wound and and her, and every day her husband would come home and he would play the guitar and he would sing to the baby. And so the minute she had the baby, the baby came out and the baby started crying. And he said, she said that he said, You stop crying. You hear your daddy. And the baby stopped crying and looked up. <laughs> a, a one minute baby. But, you know, you know, and he and the husband to this day said, Dr. Ingrid, it really happened. We, we go with it like, OK, yeah, right, though. But something must have happened for him to say that the baby stopped crying. But she said every day he would sing to the baby um, and play the guitar. And so a lot of our parents don't know how important it is to start early in the womb reading and talking to the baby and developing the baby. So I think we have to start go back to starting you know, early, back to the basics. Um, to sort of kind of close this gap. It does start with the basics, but this is killing us. You estimate that illiteracy cost American taxpayers an estimated $20 billion a year. Mm -hmm. $20 billion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all the resources that we have to provide, yes. And the dropout rate and support to students that are reading, the interventions and support that we have to provide to teachers and students who are reading below grade level, yes. Yeah, you said school dropouts cost the nation $240 billion, billion in social service expenditures and lost tax revenues. And all the support, yes. Mm -hmm. That is stunning. Mm -hmm. Three out of five people in prison can't read, and that some of the prisons project their current bed needs in future years based on students' reading tests. Third grade. They look at their third grade reading levels and they can use that to project how many prison beds they're going to need going forward. Doc, most of the research says that third grade, if I'm not reading on grade level, uh, it's, it, you know, the read to learn, learn to read. Uh, it's difficult for me to catch up. It gets more difficult. I like what you said. It's like we're chasing a train. It's just, and, and a lot of times there's a, there's a, 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 a correlation with those third graders not reading on grade level so looking at those third graders um, becoming juvenile offenders, those numbers are, there's a, not only a direct correlation, but there's a high correlation um, that, that, that those students sometimes, you know, get involved in situations that they should not. And a lot of times it's because they lacked literacy skills. One of my students did a study, a recent study um, with juvenile offenders, and we did a qualitative study. And we went in to interview these babies who had committed really harsh, you know, harsh crimes. And so one of the questions was like, when did you realize 
that you know you were struggling with reading or struggling with school. Dr. Phil, do you know a lot of the 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 the, the babies there said kindergarten and first grade, they knew that there was a difference with them performing in school. Really? We we were yeah, we were thinking they were gonna say, I don't know, third grade. But the student eyes, we were conducting the research the the a lot of the the population, the students that we the children that we went in to interview um said that kindergarten first grade that they realized that they were not reading or performing and then they went on to say it was in kindergarten first grade that a teacher told them that they were not going to you know said negative things to them so i often tell teachers be careful of what you say oh my god um, yes 85 percent of juvenile defenders have reading problems so yeah Mm -hmm. and again that's that acting out thing but i have to tell you I can't add two and two and get five every time. I've just never been good at math. It's something I've struggled with all my life. But for some reason, I discovered around maybe sixth or seventh grade, maybe a little bit earlier, I don't know, that I could read really fast and comprehend really well. I don't know why, because I'd struggle so much in math, but I'd get all my textbooks the first day of school and I'd read them all that weekend. And that has served me so well in my life. Every day I have to prepare for two shows the next day and I get show books that are 250 pages that I have to read at night. I have to say if there's one thing that I think has been a really foundational building block in my success, it is the ability to read really fast and comprehend at a really high rate my whole life. It's served me. So listen, Doc, let's talk about the history of of learning to read. I don't know what period you came, but there was a thing called Dick and Jane, and those books had a pattern. Uh, See, Dick, run, and all whatever, and you read it over and over again. And then at some point, you went to church, and if if your parents were spiritual, you went to church, and you read Bible verses, and you read in church. And then let me take it one step. My dad would read the newspaper on Sunday, and so we would imitate how he would read the newspaper, and we would pretend and play school. You saw words all around you, and you talked, and you spoke. And we didn't watch a lot of TV, Dr. Phil. You know you didn't. There was nothing to watch. (laughs) Right. Right. And so our generation, but now, Doc, listen, the kindergarten, we, I went to a school and we were taking pictures and the first grader said, you know, to the teachers, I'll take your picture. And she took the camera, Dr. Phil, and she held the camera down. And I, and she, she took the picture. I said, now, baby, why did you hold the camera down? She said, I was getting the best angle. This is First grader, she told me, she she said, look, you got to hold it. She came up to us and said, you know, we were, I was at a school and they wanted to take pictures. That little girl held the camera down. Dr. Phil, the technology, I was reading some of the comments that, you know, from the show, right? And someone said we should take away all the social media, but that's not going to happen. I'm now thinking we should try to use social media to promote or support or teach literacy. You're on your own line. You're doing all this stuff. How do we make it engaging where the child wants to read? Someone posted they're not motivated. Well, how do we motivate them? You know, how do we we got to look at new practices in order to get our kids to want to read because the times have changed, Dr. Fields. It's, it's changed. And then, listen, you, you talk about math. That has to become difficult. Listen, it used to be when you and I were in school, three times three is whatever it is, right? But now they didn't. They, they got word problems. Now it's verbiage. You know, Johnny yeah. had three apples and then times this and did this. Right. And so here it is. 
Now our math scores are being affected because now I have to be able to read and understand what the function is for that particular um, word problem. But it wasn't like that, Dr. Phil, when we, you and I were in school. I was glad when it got to be that way because then I could figure out what they were trying to figure out. But when I was growing up in grade school and certainly in sixth, seventh grade, mm-hmm. my mother would tell me, People would say, why is he reading that? Because I'd go to the library and check out five or six books, and it would be these crazy little books like Left Half Back or something about drag racing or whatever. And she always said, I don't care what he's reading as long as he's reading. They would be these kind of fantasy kind of books or whatever, but I would read four or five of them a day, and it was just exercising the reading it wasn't war and peace, but it was reading. And it got to where I would read like a page at a time instead of a word at a time. And then when it came time to read something that mattered, then it was really easy. But even comic books, if kids will read anything, it seems to me that it's good that they're reading. So listen, Doc, I compare, you know, reading or learning to read. Like I play basketball and I was pretty good. In order to be good, you, you got to practice and you got to do it over and over again and practice the right way. So. When we do our sessions or trainings at the National Literacy Institute, I'm not selling the program. I don't. I tell them all the time, I don't. Dad, what what can I buy for our for our school? I don't have anything. All I have to do is give them knowledge on how to be an insightful, knowledgeable teacher on how to teach literacy. But it, to me, it's just like practicing to be, you know, in a sport, basketball or baseball. You got to do it over and over again to get good. You, you got to work that muscle, right? And you got to build that schema. But a lot of times, again, these kids are not reading. And then a lot of our teachers are not trained to teach reading, and especially if that child is coming with a reading deficit or um, some type of area of concern and so area of need. Let me make you laugh, Dr. Phil. We're getting ready to do this thing called Book Swap. And Book Swap is where the children bring a, a book from home and then we give them a new book. Just the other day, I had someone say, do you think Doc, that's going to work. How many kids do you think are going to be able to bring a book from home? And I had a lot of people saying they don't <laughs> think that it's going to work. I, I couldn't understand. We did it before COVID and I've done it before, but I, I've had a lot of people say, do you actually believe they're going to bring a book from home? Do you think they have books from home? I, I just that threw me off for a second. But it's where the kids come and we have authors that that speak about their books and stuff right. like that, and then they they give the child their book. And I, I, for the first time, I heard quite a few educators tell me they can't wait to see how I'm going to pull this off because they can't imagine children bringing books from home, that they don't have books at home. Wow. So, yeah, I just... That, I'd be interested uh, to that, see how that goes, if they're actually yeah. reading in the home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they said I didn't, didn't have books. So I, you know, I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm such a person, like, again, I play sports, I like to win. Because I heard that, I'm like, I can't wait to do it, though, but... That, that they, they want to see. They don't think the kids will have books at home to come and swap with me. Basically what they said, we don't want you to be embarrassed in front of authors because the kids may not bring books to get a new book. All right. Now you can't float that by here twice. So where did you play basketball? Oh, Dr. Phil, listen, um, should, should I, I, I don't want to tell you. I'll just keep it to myself. I'll, I'll just, but Doc, I was really, really good. Let me, let me say this to you. I asked my coach, I hadn't seen him in so many years, right? I went to a game and I, I saw him. I played at HBCU and I, I told him, I said, why didn't you try to start me, you know, doing the preseason? 
And he said, well, you were a freshman and freshmen don't start. But Dr. Phil, I was the best person on the team. And so I told him, if you don't start me, I'm going to leave because everyone had recruited me to come play. And so, you know, during the real season, he started me and I scored, you know, I, I guess I got to tell my own story. I scored 26 points in the first game and then I started every other game after that. And so I said, how did you feel? How did you feel not playing me after I scored so many points? Now, mind you, this is 30 years, this is 20 some years ago, right? This is what he says to me. He said, little girl, it wasn't your, your, your jump shot. It was your ability to rebound. I was like, what? He was like, you was one of the best rebounders. So my self-esteem went even higher. I was like, what? He was like, your little set shot, was. it was okay, but it wasn't all that good. It was your ability to rebound. I'm sorry. So what position did you play? Dr. Phil, I'm very tall. When I was in Tennessee, of course, everyone knew me as the tall basketball player. I broke so many records in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And But when I went off to college, there were other girls that were taller than me. So in middle school, high school, I was already 5'11". I was already at the, the, the tallest person and, and hitting the backboard when girls were not even touching the backboard. But when I got to college, I played off guard. But when I was in middle school, high school, I was the center player. But yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh. I was good, Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil, I was good. Let me just preference. I was good. If they had WNBA back then, I would have been able to. You would have done it, huh? <laughs> I would have done it though. Yeah, but yeah. we need you more doing this. I absolutely love it. I absolutely We need love you it. more doing this. Dr. Phil, we did a conference. Let me just say this other piece. You know, I'm just we're, I'm having a good conversation with you. This year was my 20th year um, doing the National Literacy Institute. And Ron Clark was my um, speaker. So a lot of times he and I do a lot of stuff together. I told him this time I wasn't gonna let him outdance me. So I had practice on my um, moves. So I, I didn't let, I, I think I, I did him this time. I outdanced him. But we had over three to five, I think it might, might've been close to 5,000 teachers at this conference. And when I tell you the spirits were high, I mean, it was a lot of great presentations, but the morale, the the feedback that we got, people were like, we they had never attended a conference um, like ours. I, we try to bring a little entertainment as well as good presenters that know how to focus on, you know, helping children read and read on grade level. That's what we, we literacy. It was really good though. This is our 20th year and we had a good turnout. Oh, so I can if we imagine. Can just, we just try to reach as many teachers and provide them with support to really make an impact in the lives of children. Yeah, that's, that's my focus. What are we gonna do about this teacher shortage? Oh. Listen, we got to make it more attractive to who want to major in education. You know, here it is. They come to higher ed and I'm in the audit. I'm in the area and I'm trying to promote people to come into my you know, organization. Hey, do you want to be a teacher? And they all look like, no, I'm going to business. I'm going here. So we got to figure out how to make the, the, the field a little bit more attractive. Right. Um, I, I do think we have to increase. I don't, and Dr. Phil, I don't feel bad about saying that. I've been in education, the only thing I've ever done. So I feel like I, I have the credibility, as the kids say. I feel like I can say we need to increase the pay. It needs to be a little bit more so that, that teachers can have just one job. I go into schools and I hear teachers saying they work two jobs. I just want you to get paid, you know, and then 
work this one job, go home and rest and come back and be energized the next day. I don't want you to leave and then have to go work a night shift um, to be able to, 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 to do that. Um, I also want to, I think we, we got to give, we got to really talk about how to teach all children, right? Um, Dr. Phil, my first year teaching was difficult. I, you know, I'm African-American, but I had, and I had never been around uh, groups that might have been from a lower socioeconomic status. Let me just put it that way. So even though I, I looked like my parents, I still had a difficult time being able to understand my parents, right? And that still happens now. So we got to make sure that we understand how to do culture responsive teaching, you know, how to make sure we can be able to teach students who may not look like you or that may look like you, but come from different backgrounds. I think that may help attract. And then I think we got to get, we, we got to make sure that uh, teachers have a voice. I hear so many teachers saying they don't listen to what I actually need in the classroom um, to increase the numbers. Well, have we got non-educators directing the educational system? Of course. I think, you know, I'm going to get in trouble, but I think that's who tries to make all the decisions. You've never taught before. You, you think because you're in this certain role, you make these decisions, you know, top down. Yeah, yes. I think that's one of the main problems. And then everybody has something to say when the, the school is not performing, but they never go to that school or to that source to get, you know, what is needed. So, yeah, everyone. Yes, I do. A lot of people that are making decisions are non-educators. I do. Every teacher I've ever talked to with any depth gets into their own pocket to buy materials for their classroom. They bring stuff from home. They go to Hobby Lobby. They go to wherever they buy construction paper, they buy scissors, they buy materials, they bring things from home to make projects for the class. Now, they're not getting paid enough to live, but yet they're getting in their own pocket to go buy materials for the classroom. And then they have summer jobs, they have weekend jobs. Yeah, That just doesn't attract enough or the kind of people that we really need. Yeah. Yeah. And even the people that say they love and it's a calling over their life to be an educator, they feel funny when, you know, they discuss they would like to get paid more because people say we should do it. And, and we do do it because it's a part of us and it's our calling. And we love doing it. But if we realistic, if I'm only making sixty thousand dollars and I'm having to buy all of these resources, it's just not adding up. And the time frame. Yeah, Dr. Phil, my mom, education, 42 years. And my both parents in education, my mom did a little budget for me. So she said, okay, you're bringing home this amount of money. You have to subtract this amount of money every pay period so you can buy supplies for your classroom. So I automatically knew that I was going to have to, you know, subtract this amount of money so that I could buy resources. I ended up telling when I was a chairperson of a department, I ended up telling the students, you may have to look at your own financial, um, you know, money to be able to support some things in your classroom, like supplies and supplies for the students and resources. Yes, Dr. Phil. Yes, I'm telling you, they're leaving. Here it is. I'm coming in to do a parent night and some teachers are leaving because they go to a, a second job mm -hmm, and working on weekends. What do you think of this, what they're calling warm body? Um... Dr. Phil, we talked about that. I saw all the little comments people made. We talked about that. Listen, you, you, I, I told you, you, you wouldn't go to a, a physician 
who had never gone to medical school, you just wouldn't do it. So why would I just put anyone into um, the classroom to teach? I just disagree. Go ahead and email me and tell me what you think about me, but you just wouldn't do it. If you were not feeling well or something, you would not just go somewhere and, and say, okay, you, you want to be a doctor. Okay, well, you know what? Work on me. That's just not, but we do that. And then Dr. Phil, everyone says they can be a teacher. That, everyone, it's more than just teaching the content. It's teaching and managing and motivating and bridge. It's a whole lot of stuff. You got 30 different personalities in that classroom. You may have five to six different abilities in that classroom. Oh, man. You know, so it really, it does something to me if I'm in the streets and I'll, and someone has all the, the answers for us as teachers. That this, uh, And then they say, well, what I would do. No, that you, no, do it first. And then let me, let me see. I went in, let me make you laugh. I went in uh, last year and I did a, a, a model a lesson, right? I think I'm an expert. Dr. Phil, I went in to model a lesson with middle schoolers. I, I had never sweated so hard in my life. I was sweating. It did not go well. And I was modeling to teachers. And so I laughed because I went in thinking one thing, right? And the teachers just sat, they sat back like, hmm, did Dr. Inger, what would you do? It was just, it, I ended up saying, you know what? Secondary is difficult. So let's figure out how to work together. The prince, and I told the principal, let's do something else because we under I now understand what this teacher is experiencing when trying to teach the students. And so my team and myself, we laughed about that whole experience. Dr. Phil, I tell you, it was so difficult going in. I said, I imagine what substitute teachers, how they feel going in. Yes. The students let me know quickly I was not the main teacher. I did ask. You know, I did. I had some problems with classroom management. I was surprised because I really had a good lesson. Um, I had some students that just tell me they didn't want to participate. I had a student, you know, and no matter how good the lesson was, I had a student to, to, to leave the class. I had to go out the class to ask him what was wrong. He did come back in, but this is what he told me. He said he didn't make the basketball team and he was in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. So I said, maybe next year you'll make the team. But hey, let's come back in the classroom. So, yeah. Dr. Phil, it's, it's difficult. And you don't know what they've come from at home either. So they all bring all of that to school with them. The only good thing that happened from that lesson is the fact that I found out that he didn't make the basketball team. And that's the reason why he was cutting up during my lesson. Um, but we had a soft conversation about basketball and making trying out next year and whatever case may be. Dr. Phil, he came back in the class and said, I'll do what you asked me to do. He, When I originally asked him to do something, he said no and walked out and said, you're not the teacher. And then when we went outside to talk about what was going on, he told me we came back in. Now, that to me, with the principal and I talked about, that's a seasoned educator. A, a, a new educator would have thought, let me write him up. Let me put him out because he was disrespectful. But the issue was that he did not make the team. And a lot of times teachers don't realize these kids have feelings. These kids, some days they have bad days. He was having a bad day. And it's not necessarily a behavior problem, which we got to put him out and write him up and, and kick him out of school. But he didn't make the basketball team. And for some kids, playing sports is very important. Well, maybe it was that day that you remember telling your coach, if you didn't start you, you were out of there. <laughs> see, see. <laughs> Yes, Dr. Phil. Yes. You had some empathy. Listen, Doc, he said he would never forget me. I was like, hey, you know. But that was my burning question. I hadn't seen him in years. I was like, why didn't you play me? Yes. 
But so look, I could relate to that child story. Of course. Yes, or yeah, which is what relates to his experience. Yes. Well, everything you're saying makes so much sense. And I want parents to really hear what you're saying here and to pay attention to whether their child is reading on grade level or not. Pay attention if, let me put my psychology hat on here for a minute and pay attention as to whether or not your child is showing some departures from baseline or not, because if they're starting to act out or if they're experiencing something where they're being withdrawn or they're starting to show some emotions you're not used to seeing or whatever that could be distracting them, ask those questions and don't take nothing or no for an answer because what you said was so profound. The first three years they learn to read. From there mm-hmm. on, they read to learn. And yeah. whatever it takes, you've got to close that gap because it will cost them money. It will cost okay. them years off their life. It will cost them so many things if they don't complete that education and move on mm-hmm. into their lives. Mm-hmm. Dr. Phil, let me also give another resource for parents, and it, it may seem very um, small, but there is this thing called the adult word list. You've probably seen it with your babies or grandbabies, and they have a, a number of words per grade level. And so a lot of times it starts off a pre-primer, so, and it goes up until I think third or fourth, maybe up to sixth grade. And that's a good indicator to see where your baby is. If you give that list to your baby, he's sitting in third grade right now, uh, midway, he should know the majority of those words on that list. If he does not, that's when you need to say, well, let me sort of give some more attention to it. But there is a set of words because you know that most of our textbooks, no matter what, are written on you know eighth grade level, right? It's not right. until master's and the doctorate that you get those um, level or tier four words, those specialized words. But most of those words we'll see over and over again. And so that don't word list gives those parents an indicator where their baby is um, as it relates to vocabulary. And so that's a good resource that I've given out to parents. Okay. And let me ask you, what is that called? It's called the don't word list. My Southern dialect is D-O-L-C-H-E, don't word list. Okay. All right, we're going to put that on the website. Now, let me ask you a couple of things in closing here. And if you don't have this on the top of your head, just give me your best estimate or remembrance. Most newspapers are written at what grade level? Oh, God. I think it's about fifth grade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Most of our textbooks are not going past eighth grade unless you're, like I said, getting your master's or your doctorate. Then you get those tier four words. But we're mostly in tier one, tier two, tier three vocabulary words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your high-frequency words. Your high-frequency. Tier four words are going to be in doctoral level textbooks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When you talk about what level of fifth grade, eighth grade level, are we talking about how many words are in a sentence and how many syllables are in the words? How do they define what level something is at? Does that have to do with the number of words per sentence? No. Or the so, number of syllables in the words? How do they decide what's at the fifth grade level? Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Phil, some of our words are phonetically, right? We, we can pronounce them by decoding them. And then our other set of words are our uh, sight words or our, our high 
frequency words. Right. So they're in two categories. So those are the so you have a set of words where we're teaching the students the um, uh, phonics skills or phonics generalization rules. Uh -huh. For example, in kindergarten we have the CBC rule and the words like at. But then you also teach the kids, we may have words that are rule breakers. And those rule breakers, a lot of times, are our sight words, like W-A-S is a sight word. T-H-E is a sight word. And so you have between 500 to 1,000 sight words. And then you have these words that we pronounce phonetically. And so that's what they mean. Does that mean? So if you can't decode the word, and that word is not a sight word, then that's how we have a problem with comprehension. Does that make sense? So you should be able to look at that word, determine if it's a sight word, or determine if you have to use one of your rules to pronounce the word. Now, the problem also, Dr. Field, is that the English language is the most difficult thing language to learn because we have so many borrowed words. A lot of our second language or ELL students, they can pick up reading and, and, and speaking different languages real quick. But when it's, when it's English, it's like, oh, doc, that's where it's hard. That's where it's difficult because they have problems with the vocabulary. Does that make sense? So that's what they mean. Yeah, because it always drove me crazy when I was trying to explain to my grandkids how you pronounce tour like a band going on tour, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you pronounce four as four and sour as sour, but they're all spelled O-U-R. There's three different pronunciations. It's S-O-U-R, T-O-U-R, F-O-U-R. Only difference is the first letter and they're pronounced three different ways. And my grandkids are saying, okay, explain this to me. I'm saying, nah, no, I don't think so. I need to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what we do now is we'll say, what's the origin of the word? And that's the reason why it's pronounced that way. But look, what the other thing that's interesting with learning to read, Doc, is our dialects. You know, um, you know, I'm from the South. Right. And they they say we have 44 phonemes. Um, but Dr. Phil, sometimes, you know, depending on where you're from, you go down to about 20 phonemes, diphthongs and things of that nature. <laughs> So all of that plays a role. Funny story. No, it's time to go. The neighbor said, Doc, I'm going to go get some Earl. I'm going to put Earl in my car from NTB. I sat there. I said, wow, okay. And he kept on talking. He said, oh, it's, they got the Earl on sale. And I said, okay, how can a human be on sale? As he kept going, Dr. Phil, I, I knew, I realized he was trying to say oil. Now, did I correct my neighbor? No, I did not. No. I said, well, you know what? When you go to NTB and get Earl, I, I need the synthetic Earl for my car, too. So, yes. <laughs> so, you know, so dialect also plays a role um, with teaching the kids to read and read phonetically. It does. It absolutely does. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's from where you're from. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Well, this is absolutely fascinating, and it is an epidemic issue of illiteracy. It's costing us money. It's costing people quality of life. It's costing people longevity in their lives. And I thought mm -hmm. it was so fascinating what you shared with us when we talked before. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to talk about with regard to this. I hope you'll make time to talk to me again, because I think there's just so much more to talk about with regard to this. and. I think you are fascinating and entertaining, and I would love to have you back again. 
Doc, I am, listen, I'm enjoying it. I'm telling you, we're talking about literacy? Oh, my area. I can imagine the convention you have, the meeting you have. I bet you it is the best they ever go to. It really is. It really, let, let me tell you this. I, I, I'm not just saying it because I'm saying it, but but I'm saying it. When they, it's something that I've always wanted when I was like truly in the classroom. I always wanted to go somewhere where I would be energized and also get good good information. We do, we bring dynamic speakers. And of course, you know, I'm there having a great time. Um, someone said I should start doing sets, comedy sets. I don't know what that means though, but anyway, but I, I've just enjoyed it. I, I'm enjoying bringing both together, a little entertainment to motivate you, right? To want to stay in this field. And then I'm giving you that good content knowledge of how to be an effective teacher. I'm not selling anything. I'm just trying to show you and, and give you information of how to teach those babies how to read. Yeah. If I get you motivated, look, Doc, if I get them motivated, right, and they feel good about teaching, regardless of how little the pay is, they may stay in the profession. So we would we will not have this warm body issue. If I can get more teachers to say, you know what, I can do another year. I could do another year. You bet. Yeah. Listen, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? Totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Thank you for talking to me today. And you promised to do it again. I'm going to hold you to it. Oh, yes, sir. I've enjoyed it. Dr. Ingrid, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. All so right. Bye-bye.